0: A man recently told me that in his opinion, every minister, every preacher should have three letters written on his pulpit steps. E-G-O. The word ego is what he was referring to. Because in his opinion, every minister and every preacher is at risk of falling into the sin of pride. And I can't say that he's wrong. Whether or not you would agree with the measure he suggested... The Bible does say in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, where it deals with the qualifications for church elders, that there is a danger for such men to be lifted up with pride and that they may fall. But the problem of pride is not one that's confined to those in the pulpit. It's also found in the pew. Well, what is pride? Pride is defined as thinking too highly of yourself, too highly of self. Many of the synonyms for pride, the words that mean the same thing. Begin with that little word self, self love, self admiration, self glorification. This is pride. And when we read the Bible and we look at what the Bible has to say about pride, we find that pride was the sin that turned angels into devils. In Isaiah 14, many Bible scholars attribute what's said there to what happened to Satan. As you know, he was an angel. Who fell from heaven. And Isaiah 14 contains verses. For thou hast said in thy heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation. In the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Pride is Satan's sin. Pride in the Bible is also equated with arrogance. Arrogance is having an exaggerated sense of your importance. People in the Bible are described as proud, also as being haughty or high-minded. But in everyday life, pride makes us very conscious of what others think. Human pride is always relative. And by that I mean it's always related to other people and concerned with what they are and what they think. For example, pride might scorn a rusty car, or pride might scorn at a messy home. Pride is what makes us keep up appearances with our neighbors, and pride was well understood by the very cunning car salesman, who once said to a customer, you know, I have some nicer stuff out the back, but your neighbors said, this is all you can afford. In the case of the famous golfer, Arnold Palmer, pride went before a fall. He tells the story of the 1961 Masters when he was on the final hole and he says, I had a one-stroke lead. I had just hit a very satisfying tee shot. I felt I was in pretty good shape. And as I approached my ball, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He stuck out his hand and said, congratulations, Arnold. I took his hand and shook it. But as I did, I knew immediately I had lost my focus. My next two shots, I put it in a sand bunker, and then I missed the green, and then I missed a putt, and lost the Masters. Arnold Palmer thought he had it won, but he was wrong. Let me remind you of that very critical phrase. He said, I felt I was in pretty good shape. And isn't that what people say today when you ask them about their soul and about matters of eternity, and how they will stand before God, and how they will relate to God when their life comes to an end? so often we get the answer that, I feel I'm in pretty good shape. I'm a relatively good person, relatively. I'm not too bad. I've never done anything terrible. These people are priding themselves on being a good person. But sadly, the Bible tells us that that pride will lead to their destruction. And in Luke chapter 18, what we find is not the first occasion when Christ has had to address the sin of pride over and over in his earthly ministry. He has turned his focus to those people who were proud, particularly in matters of religion. And once again, in this parable, with this parable, he addresses such an audience. And I want to consider this evening with you the problem of pride. Notice, first of all, the the offense of pride, the offense of pride. Christ's audience is described in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. It says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Christ's parables were always tailored to the audience in front of him. And this parable proves that Christ was speaking to an audience who were self confident and very self assured because he speaks a parable about pride and humility. These people were confident in themselves, they trusted in themselves, but this was not a harmless kind of confidence. This wasn't a confidence that was in any way justifiable. Sometimes people are confident and it can be justified. Sometimes if you have a skilled workman who's capable of doing his job well and has a proven track record, he could reasonably be confident that if you present him with a challenge, I would be able to do that and I can do it well. That wouldn't necessarily be pride. But the trust, the self-confidence that was displayed by these people in Luke 18 and verse 9 was not justifiable at all, because this was not any simple physical or skillful matter. This was nothing to do with industry or business. This was a matter of the soul, because it says they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Pharisees, to whom Jesus Christ was speaking, thought that they could please God by themselves. They were trusting in themselves to be righteous before God, and in this we learn that pride is an offense against God. Christ began the actual parable in verse 10 with these words, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. One of the Puritans pointed out very astutely that Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the same altar And so in this parable, you see two men coming up to the temple to pray. And as we'll see, one of them brings Cain's offering, and one of them trusts in the right offering for sin. See, not everyone who comes into a house of worship is genuinely a child of God. Not everyone comes to church for the right reasons. Not everyone comes with their heart right before God. This farce, came to the temple that day as part of his tradition of strict religion. He was a religionist. He was a strict Jew. He observed all the ceremonies of Old Testament law and Jewish traditions. And the Pharisees in and of themselves were really reformers. They were holding strictly to the Old Testament law and to other traditions that had been added. They resisted the influence of the culture of Greece that was coming in in this time. And they held very strictly to what had been delivered to the Old Testament nation of Israel. They observed many things. But listen to what Jesus Christ taught about the Pharisees when he revealed not simply their outward behavior, but their heart. We're told in Matthew 23, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. then Christ goes on. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. That word means Master. The Pharisee came to the house of God this day in Luke 18 for selfish motives, and that in itself is an offense against God. Beware, sinner, this evening. If you come to this house putting on a show, that is an offense against God. You'll notice in verse 11 that the Pharisee's prayer begins with the words, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And while the Pharisee begins with something that appears to be godly, with the words, God, I thank thee, what follows next is not godly in the slightest. His prayer is pretentious. He considers himself better than other men. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. In this prayer, there's no mention of grace. There's no credit to God for working in the life of the Pharisee and giving him a new heart. There's no mention of repentance from sin. Everything that the Pharisee brings to God in this prayer is all a product of his personal good living. It's Cain's offering. And we noted in the introduction that human pride always takes other people for its standard. Isn't that so true? You'll find that just happening in the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. This Pharisee Was sadly misguided into thinking that God would be impressed with relative morality. He speaks as if God would care that he was not as notorious a sinner as other people. But God doesn't care for relative goodness and relative morality. That will never satisfy God. God requires perfect obedience and absolute moral behavior, He requires the perfect observance of His law the Bible teaches us something that will make it clear that keeping God's law perfectly is impossible. The Bible teaches us in many places, notably the Psalms and again in Romans, that there is none righteous. That there is none, no one that doeth good in the sight of God. There is no one that even seeketh after God. The Bible teaches us that natural man, as he's born into this world, as he begins his existence at the moment of conception, he is conceived in sin. And that his entire being is spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. So, therefore, for anyone, this Pharisee, or perhaps you, to proudly think that you will be accepted with God because of what you do, and that being not as bad as someone else, is a terrible offense to God's holy nature. You're a sinner. You're incapable of pleasing God. And your pride offends God. You see in this parable also that pride is an offense to other men. Look back at verse 9. He, Christ said, Christ spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But there's more to that verse. It says, and despised others. Isn't that what pride people do? Pride exalts self despises others. When proud individuals see people who don't have the same qualities or don't reach the same standards as they do, they despise them. They push them to one side. They see them as nothing. And we find that spirit in the prayer of the Pharisee. He says, I thank thee that I am not as other men. I want you to move towards The end of the Pharisee's prayer was he prays in verse 11 and he thanks God that he is not as other men such as extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he comes at the end of verse 11 to say, or even as this publican, the other man who had come up to the temple to pray. Who was the publican? Publicans were tax collectors. That's what the word means. They weren't considered to be good people. It wasn't like someone who nowadays works for HMRC And it's all regulated and respectable. No, no, no. These were unjust people. Untrustworthy people. People who were out not only to collect the taxes that were owed to the Roman occupation of Israel, but to make as much money as they could for themselves along the way. People with sticky fingers. People who were skimming. Untrustworthy people. That's what a publican was. In the New Testament, it's very interesting. We find that God, the author of Holy Scripture, associates publicans with unscrupulous people. He associates associates them with sinners in Matthew 9. God associates publicans with gluttons and wine bibbers in Matthew 11. And he associates a publican with harlots in Matthew 21. And so in Bible times, being a publican or a tax collector was not a sought-after profession. Even the Lord Jesus Christ used publicans in a negative context during his own personal ministry, In Matthew chapter 5, he implies that publicans had the lowest moral character of all people. Jesus Christ did that as he was teaching that there's nothing special about loving someone who loves you. Because even a publican does that. And in Matthew 18, Christ implied that publicans were bad company. And that they were the kind of people who others would normally distance themselves from. And in the scripture, you can see publicans are not good people. They're not the kind of people whom you would encourage your children to hang around. But on at least three occasions in the Bible, we find that publicans were following Jesus Christ and that they were interested in his teaching. They came near to him. And what did Jesus Christ do? Did he drive them away? Did he distance himself from them? No. We find that the Lord sat with them ate with them, and taught them. And of course, when Jesus did that, the Pharisees were horrified. And they said, this man receiveth sinners. This man is eating with publicans, they said. And they gossiped about him and murmured among themselves that he would dare associate himself with such low people. And so when you and I consider the prayer of the Pharisee, and we see that The offense of pride is not only against God, but also against men. We have to ask ourselves, why in his prayer was he even thinking about the publican? Why would he be thinking about other people when he really should be thinking about himself? When you come in prayer to confess sin and to come before God, we should be concerned with our own souls and our own lives and not thinking about others in that negative fashion. He was apparently, after all, communing with God. Matthew Henry comments in the verse and says... Could he not say his prayers without reproaching his neighbors? Clearly, the Pharisee was in the habit of consoling himself by comparing himself with other people. Everyone does this. It's time for a little reflection now. For all of us. We've all done this. We've all been sitting in church when the Lord has been speaking through the preacher against a particular sin. And instead of taking the rebuke on our own hearts, we're quickly scanning through the congregation in our minds, if not with our eyes, to find someone who we believe to be worse than we are. Oh, well, I have done that, but not as much as she has. And then we breathe a sigh of relief because we're apparently not the worst sinner in the room. That's pride. And Christian, you and I should know better than that because we're taught in the scriptures to esteem others better than ourselves. We should know better. But unsaved person. If you continue to walk life in this course, if you continue to proudly compare yourself to others and base God's apparent satisfaction on that, your pride will take you to hell. You see, that's exactly what the Pharisee was doing in this offense of pride. Think about what he was praying. Just imagine in your next church prayer meeting here, After a few other people have prayed scripturally and humbly, some person opens their mouth and says, Oh God, I thank you, I'm not like him over there. The Pharisee thought his works would make him satisfactory to God. He thought that he was superior to others. But the heart of the Pharisee has been exposed here for all to see by his own words. He's confessed nothing, but his sin is so obvious. The offense of pride, an offense to God as well as to our fellow man. I want to look now at the outcome of pride. Let me relate a short story to you. It's in the American Civil War. During a particular battle in that war, there was a general in the Union Army called John Sedgwick. He was directing his troops to move across the battlefield at one point. The enemy lines were quite a distance away, but there were sharpshooters active. And Sedgwick's soldiers could hear their bullets whistling overhead. Some of the soldiers were ducking whenever they heard the whistle. And the general, who was known to be quite a fearless man, was laughing at them. And he said, don't worry, men. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. One of the soldiers got up and saluted and said, General, I dodged a shell once, and if I hadn't, it would have taken my head off. I believe in dodging. And The general said, all right, my man, go to your place. And just then, another shrill whistle was heard, followed by a dull thud, and the general fell. Proverbs 16, verse 18 tells us, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So for the Pharisee, what was the outcome of his pride? You'll find two things. First of all, we find that he was not justified. He was not justified. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee was not justified. This is a direct contradiction to Christ's audience. Remember, the men to whom he spoke, perhaps the women to whom he spoke, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Pharisee, in his prayer, thanked God. Oh God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are unjust." But what does Christ say about the Pharisee? He says he was not justified. That he was not declared righteous by God. The Pharisee, even after all his religious efforts, all his good living, his works, his tithing, was still a sinner. Not changed. Didn't have a new heart. Was not justified. Was not accepted by God. And therefore, his eternal destiny is shown in verse 14. When it says, everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. The outcome of pride was that the Pharisee was not justified and that, secondly, he was abased. He was brought low. There is no lower place than hell. And that is where the proud sinner will go. The Bible tells us that hell has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. Jesus Christ Remember, told some Pharisees, ye are of your father the devil. And on Christ's authority I tell you tonight, not with any joy, but I trust faithfully to Scripture if you are nothing more than a religious hypocrite, if you have no genuine faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in yourself to be righteous in the sight of God, you will share hell with the devil for all eternity. And it will be so awful for you Because you were offered Jesus Christ. You were offered the chance to have your sins forgiven. You were offered the opportunity to come to him. And to be taken in and never cast out. But the outcome of your pride, if you continue, will be that you will be cast into hell. Psalm 10 and verse 4 tells us, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. And in verse 14, Christ shows us two opposites. He shows us this Pharisee who through his pride has come to a place where he is not justified and he is walking a fast path to hell. But he also shows one who was humble and who we are told in verse 14 was exalted. In the final place this evening, let me consider with you the opposite of pride if you're going to escape hell, if you're going to escape the wrath and the punishment of God, you must not be proud. You must be humble. Let's see this example of humility before God where a man came to see himself as exactly he was. What is pride? Thinking of yourself more highly than you should. And in the Bible, what is humility? What is this humility that we need before God? It is to see ourselves exactly as we are. Not to see ourselves... Worse than we are, but exactly as we are. It says in verse 13, And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. Look at the contrast in those words against the posture of the Pharisee. The Pharisee who stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men. Here we have the publican with a humble And a penitent and a sorrowful posture. He would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He was far from the Pharisee. It says the publican standing afar off. Wherever the, 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 the Pharisee stood was bound to be a prominent place. Where plenty of people could see him. The publican was nowhere near that. The publican was not looking for attention. He felt unworthy. And his posture, as I've noted, was opposite to the Pharisee's. Instead of standing confidently, this publican is ashamed. His eyes are directed to the ground. He's like a guilty person, guilty child, looking at the floor. And then we find that he smote upon his breast. He would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast. You see, his heart was so convicted of his unworthiness and his absolute sinfulness, which we noted earlier, for none is righteous, that he showed his grief outwardly. He was overcome with sorrow. At his sinful heart. He was beating on his chest. This is a sign of grief, very intense, a sign and an exhibition of shame. It's something that in our culture we probably can't relate to so easily, but other countries are less inhibited in their expressions than we are. And this man was beating on his chest. Not a care in the world for what all the people around him in the temple were thinking. He didn't care what they were saying about him. He was simply concerned with how he stood before God and he showed that in his next words, God be merciful to me, a sinner. His humble prayer. You see, he felt his sin. He felt his guilt before God. He knew that he was separated from God because of his sin and he humbly calls out on God to have mercy on him. He doesn't mention a single thing he has done. He doesn't mention who he is or where he's from or how much he has ever given. Although no doubt, he may well have given. He may well have come to the temple many times before. He may well have fasted. Doesn't bother mentioning it. Because those are not the things that will satisfy God. Instead, he humbly calls out on God to have mercy on him, to pardon him from his sins and to reconcile him to himself. And when the publican uttered those words, God, be merciful, he was in effect praying for God's wrath against his own personal sin to be appeased. That God's wrath would be appeased by the blood of a sacrifice because this man was a Jew he was familiar with the temple and with the system of the worship of the Jews. And what were the Jews instructed to do but to bring a sacrifice to the temple that would be offered and whose blood would be shed on their behalf to represent them. That sacrifice pointed to the true one sacrifice for sin who of course is the Lord Jesus Christ whose blood was shed for the remission of of sins, whose blood was shed to wash sinners from their sin. And this was the prayer of a penitent sinner, not trusting in himself at all, but simply crying out to God for mercy. This is the prayer which God promises to hear and answer. Acts two twenty one, And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Proverbs twenty-eight and thirteen. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them, shall have mercy. Notice that the 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 publican was not one bit concerned with other people, because in his prayer he says, "God be merciful to me, a sinner." This New Testament, originally written in Greek, actually says, "God." Be merciful to me, the sinner. There's a definite article here. The sinner. The publican wasn't thinking about any other sinners. As far as he was concerned, he stood alone before God and was praying for God's mercy to be extended to him. He wasn't thinking of any other people. He stood without a single argument, without a single excuse, and not deflecting attention to anybody else in that temple. He was simply praying for God to have mercy on him and that sinner is how you need to approach God tonight. You need to forget about everyone else. You need to forget about every religious uh, every religious hypocrite you have ever known and I'm sure you've known some. You need to stop trying to use their failures as an excuse as to why you shouldn't come to God. You need to come and meet God and have your own personal sins dealt with. God needs to be God will be merciful to you, the sinner. Because when all is said and done, It's only your soul with which you should be concerned. The Pharisee came to the temple to make an appearance. The publican came to make a request. He doesn't care what the people around him think of his emotional state, of his tears, of his sorrow, of his beating on his chest. He just cries to God to have his greatest problem solved. And sinner, you should be seeking for God's mercy. You've got to stop relying on yourself. You will never be good enough to please God. You you need God's mercy. When one day you stand before Almighty God at the judgment seat, you won't stand there with your family. You won't stand there with your mates. You'll be alone. You, the sinner, will be condemned. You'll no longer be able to pray, you'll be lost forever. But notice Christ's conclusion. Christ said at the end of the parable, I tell you, remember who's speaking, not just a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The man, the publican, the lowest of the low, keeping company with harlots, wine bibbers, with gluttons, with sinners, with such a poor reputation. He went home justified. He went home righteous in God's sight because he acknowledged his sin before God and he asked for the mercy of God. He was justified. He was declared to be righteous, not as the audience of Christ who trusted in themselves to be righteous, but this publican was declared to be righteous by God, by the one, the one, the one judge. Romans chapter eight and verse 33 tells us, it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? See, sinner, if you come to God this evening and you trust in him for the salvation of your never dying soul, God will justify you. He will declare you to be legally righteous in his sight and you will have no fear of condemnation. The one true and living God will accept you because you come as a sinner to Jesus and you trust in his work and his perfection. And you cast yourself on him. So pride is thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. Humility in the gospel is seeing ourselves exactly as we are sinners. Unworthy. Completely unacceptable to God. And in spite of this, God offers us mercy. A little poem from John Bunyan as we close. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I close with James chapter four and verse six. My final exhortation to you this evening, if you are unsaved, if you don't know Christ, let me tell you what this verse says. James four and verse six says, God resisteth the proud And giveth grace unto the humble. You need grace this evening. You need to stop relying on yourself. And there's grace for you. There's mercy with the Lord. So come to him. And be saved tonight. Amen. Let's just have a brief word of prayer before we sing our final hymn. Our Father in heaven. We ask that these words would be burned into the minds of the unsaved we ask that they would not leave this matter but that they would urgently come and cry for mercy that they would see very clearly that they can never please God Lord may they see so clearly that if God is not appeased that if his wrath is not turned away that it will be laid down on them for all of eternity Lord keep these serious matters before their minds bless us Lord as we Sing a hymn together and then part and go our separate ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hymn number 330. 330. Since Christ my soul from sin set free, this world has been a heaven to me. We'll stand to sing and remain standing for the benediction.